Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com for weekly updates about my podcasts, events, and more. Also, follow me on Instagram at zibbyowens and also at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. And finally, join my virtual book club called Zibby's Virtual Book Club, which meets every other Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time until 3 p.m. and features half an hour of book club discussion, followed by 30 minutes of Q&A with the author whose book we've just discussed. You can sign up on my website, zibbyowens.com, under the virtual book club section, or even on Instagram under the link in my bio. I hope you'll find me in all these different channels and enjoy this podcast. Hi, I don't know if you guys know this or not, but I have an anthology coming out called Moms Don't Have Time 2, a quarantine anthology. And it comes out on February 16th and has essays by 60 plus of the authors who have been on this podcast. So first of all, please pre-order this book. I think you will love it. I'm so excited about all the authors who are represented. Um, just to give you a few, um, Chris Bajalian, uh, Jewel Parker Rhodes, Ashley Prentice Norton, Gretchen Rubin, Rima Zaman, Eileen Zimmerman. And that is just from the first page of the multi-page table of contents. So please pick up this book, Moms Don't Have Time To, a quarantine anthology. It's available anywhere you buy books, Amazon, bookshop.org, and your local independent bookstore. So please pick up a copy. And also, I want to invite you listeners to my um, fundraiser slash launch party the night it comes out on February 16th, a Tuesday at 7 p.m., Bookhampton and the Children's Museum of the East End are co-hosting it for me. And 50 of the authors who wrote essays in this book, as well as many of the amazing authors who blurbed this book, um, who wrote little praiseworthy quotes at at the front, will be there. And you can be there too. So if you go to my website, zibbyowens.com, and just click on Anthology and go to Book Tour, you will see um, a whole fundraiser section. And for $50, um, you can attend. You'll get a copy of the book, and you'll get to schmooze on Zoom with all of these amazing authors. This is like going to be the literary happening of February. So please come. I would love to see you all in person on Zoom, I guess, but even see some of your faces. I know so many of you are really loyal listeners, and that makes me really happy. All proceeds of the book and the fundraiser are going to the Susan Felice Owens Program for COVID-19 Vaccine Research at Mount Sinai Health System. And it is named after my husband's mother, who passed away from COVID over the summer, which many of you followed along on Instagram as I uh, recounted that horrific experience. So all the proceeds are going there. The cost includes the price of a book. So thank you for supporting this effort and for supporting my book. I can't wait to see you there. Today's episode has been sponsored by This Is Everything with Ali Levine, a podcast hosted by Hollywood mom, celebrity stylist, influencer, and Bravo reality star, Ali Levine. On her podcast, you'll get a mix of, well, everything from motherhood to fashion, lifestyle, spiritual being, all totally real and raw. You have to listen. Allie interviews celebrities, experts, entrepreneurs, and so much more. Tune in weekly to be uplifted, empowered, inspired, and truly entertained. 
Hi, everybody. Yesterday started our February book blast. Sometimes I end up with just so many amazing episodes that I have to release a whole bunch at once. So today is day two of the February book blast, and today is Nonfiction Tuesday. If you missed it, yesterday was Memoir Monday, and then we have Literary Fiction coming on Wednesday, New Novels Thursday, and Family Theme Memoirs on Friday. So stick with us for the whole week. Adam Grant is the author of Think Again, The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know. He is an organizational psychologist at the Wharton School, where he has been the top-rated professor for seven straight years. His books have sold millions of copies. His TED Talks have been viewed over 25 million times, and his podcast, Work Life with Adam Grant, has topped the charts. His pioneering research has inspired people to rethink fundamental assumptions about motivation, generosity, and creativity. He has been recognized as one of the world's 10 most influential management thinkers and Fortune's 40 Under 40, and has received Distinguished Scientific Achievement Awards from the American Psychological Association and the National Science Foundation. Grant received his BA from Harvard University and his PhD from the University of Michigan, and he is a former junior Olympic springboard diver. He lives in Philadelphia with his wife and their three children. Welcome, Adam. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss Think Again. Well, thank you, Zibi. I'm thrilled to be here, but you should really reserve your enthusiasm for the end because we don't know how this is going to go. You're right. And I might change my mind a hundred times. I'm going to rethink the whole thing. Maybe you should. As we go. In fact, maybe you shouldn't have invited me at all. I have been debating that. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe there are some things you shouldn't rethink. (laughs) We, in case anyone is confused, we are joking like this because that is the topic of Adam's book, The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know. And I personally have found immense validation at the whole premise of this book being that it's okay to rethink because I literally rethink every decision I ever make (laughs) to the distress of everyone around me because I'm constantly changing plans. And everybody has sort of viewed this as a weakness. And now I'm going to, I'm going to view it as a strength. I'm not sure I really meant to come and just validate all of your analysis paralysis and all the ways that you might drive yourself and other people crazy if you rethink everything. But I do worry, Zibi, that we live in a world where people are expected to stick to their convictions. And we think that consistency is a sign of strength. And I, every time I hear people say that, I think, well, if you never change your mind, how are you ever learning or growing? It's so true. I was actually talking about the topic of your book with a friend of mine and what it was about. And she was like, well, I'm so glad someone said that. She's like, because I always feel bad for politicians when they have a different belief about a certain topic, like 10 years later, why are they not allowed to change their mind? I changed my mind on lots of things, she said. So yeah, I've I've been thinking a lot about that lately because we see so many headlines about flip-flopping. Yes. And I do think there are times when we should be critical of that, right? If if you're changing your mind just to please your tribe, or if you haven't actually changed your mind, but you're towing a party line, then we probably shouldn't give people credit for evolving. But if people have reflected deeply on an issue, if they've looked at the evidence, if they've had conversations that led them to question some of their convictions, I think that's a sign of progress in many cases. Yes. I didn't mean to suggest flip-flopping to cater to the whims of the popular (laughs) vote would be a positive, but just that people are allowed to change their minds as we do about lots of things in the course of daily life. Bring it on. Yeah. (laughs) Your book talked about so many different amazing things, but one thing that I loved was when you talk about kids and when people ask them what they want to be when they grow up. Because I have been taking issue with this question a lot lately when people ask my kids, because I'm thinking, I don't know, I didn't, not only did I not know for sure, although I wanted to be a writer, 
I've changed my career and my job a hundred times, not a hundred times, a lot. And I don't think it's even a fair question anymore. People don't know necessarily, even when they're our age, what they want to be. Things are constantly evolving. So tell me about that and your whole discussion of it in the book. Yeah, it's. I think it's a great way to get kids trapped in plans that don't actually make any sense for them, right? So I remember as a kid being asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? And the only acceptable answer was something heroic, right? I had to say an astronaut or a filmmaker. I had no idea what I wanted to be. And I also, it never occurred to me until much later that I didn't have to define myself solely in terms of work, right? It's, it's not an acceptable answer to say, I want to be a good dad or for you to say, I want to be a good mom. It's also not acceptable to say, I want to be a person of integrity or generosity. And this is such a, a peculiar American thing, right? If you go to Europe, people don't ask, what do you want to be? They don't even ask you, what do you do when they meet you? Because it's considered rude and they'd rather talk about what you love to do. And so, I don't know, at some level, Zibi, I think, I think it, would, it would be a lot kinder to kids if instead of saying, what do you want to be when you grow up? We ask them, what are all the different things you want to do? And allow them to recognize that they can have many careers and many identities and what they think is, is exciting to them might change over time or maybe even the job that they want doesn't exist yet. Totally. I mean, podcasting, what is that? <laughs> yeah. Right? Like, what are we even doing right now? Zoom podcasting? This, I mean, no. This was not a job when we this, were kids. No. Would have saved me a lot of rethinking of what I wanted to do. Had you I can talk to people and that's work? Really? <laughs> I Sign know. me up. It's amazing. It's like a total joke. And speaking of kids, by the way, so how great that I think it was your daughter who came up with the cover idea with the match and the water. Yeah, join us 12. It was it was such an exciting moment for me because I knew we needed a cover that would get people to think again, but nothing we tried was working. And I just happened to mention offhand one day that we were looking for a cover idea. And Joanna says, well, what if you had a match with, with water instead of fire? And it just clicked instantly. And it really made me rethink where I get my ideas. You know, my, my process is way too linear. I was like, well, we need an optical illusion, but a lot of them have been done before and they're cliched. And then the new ones we tried just didn't work. They were too confusing. And Joanna said, well, rethinking is about doing the opposite many times. And so let me think about opposites. And she said, well, water and fire. And she didn't even know that the opening story was about firefighters. I, I was going to ask if it was perfect. based on that and how perceptive she was. That was amazing. Complete coincidence. Wow. All right. Well, I've gotten my kids involved in my anthology book covers by having them just pose, but yours are now like the idea generators. So I don't know. That's this just, is the next step for your kids. This is the next step. Yes. A hundred percent. Tell me a little bit about in your Ted talk, you talked about how you're a procrastinator, which I loved. <laughs> Tell me a little more about that. Are you one too? I am one too. Yes. All right. I, I had a hunch. So I've, I've always taken joy and pride in getting things done early. So I was the kid in college who annoyed all my friends because I finished a draft of my thesis a few months in advance. And I just, when I have a deadline, I want to, I want to get not only, I guess, let me say this a little differently. When I'm excited about a project, I want to finish it as soon as possible because I have this image of how great it could be. And every minute I'm not working on it is, is a source of anxiety. Like it might not get done or it might be terrible. And I know a lot of procrastinators who feel that anxiety at the last minute, and I just feel it a few weeks or a few months ahead of schedule, right? So procrastinating is, is essentially feeling that urge to finish way ahead of schedule. Yes. Tell me about your procrastination. I make false deadlines to avoid the anxiety of 
running up against a deadline. But then, as you said, like all my anxiety spikes around my false deadline. <laughs> so <laughs> it like makes no sense. I don't think I'm actually doing any good. So I felt relieved that there was now a term to describe this. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, I... I, I keep meeting people who, who say, look, I understand that it's probably worse to be an extreme procrastinator than it is to be a procrastinator, but this isn't fun either because yeah. I'm always tricking myself into thinking that I have all this pressure on me to do something and it's actually taking some of the joy out of my work. Totally. Okay, so let's talk a little more about rethinking in general and why you wanted to write a whole book about it. Why is it so important that people know that it's not only okay, but actually beneficial to rethink and dig deep and poke holes in our own beliefs and come up with new theories. Why is this important? Uh, there's so many reasons. I think the place I would start is to say that our first thoughts, our intuitions, are often not our best thoughts. So you know there's some research on, on students taking tests showing that if they, if they have a first instinct and then they change their answer, on average, they actually improve their scores. And yet when you tell students that, they still hesitate to rethink their answers. Because I think in part, there's this regret that comes from saying, well, I had the right answer and then I undid it and I made a big mistake. Whereas if you stuck to your first answer and you didn't rethink it, there's really nothing to second guess. And I think for so many of us, it's just, it's easy to prefer the comfort of conviction over the discomfort of doubt. And every time you question your own opinions or your own knowledge, you're saying, you know what? I might be living in an unpredictable world. I might lack some control over my life. I might be excluded from the tribe of people who sees the world a certain way. And yet we live in a rapidly changing world. And as knowledge evolves, as facts change, if we don't update our thinking, it's pretty easy to get stuck in the past. And I think we probably should put an expiration date on a lot of the beliefs that we form. Is there a belief you have that you've changed lately? Oh, I have so many. Where do you want to start? I don't know. Something about parenting. Oh, yeah. I've, I've rethought almost everything I used to believe about <laughs> parenting. So I think the, one of the big ones for me actually is a, a little bit of a twist on growth mindset. So I, I was really heavily influenced, as I'm sure you and many others were too, by Carol Dweck's work and said, okay, we should really be careful to praise, you know, to praise effort, not, not character. We should praise, sorry, we should praise effort, not ability was, was the big thing that stuck with me. The, pa- the power I, of yet, right? Yeah, like, exactly. Yet. Not yet. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I haven't figured this out yet. Mm-hmm. Such a such a key phrase. And yet, <laughs> then I read some research showing that in the realm of generosity, if you want to raise kids to be giving and caring, it's actually more effective to to say you are a helper or you are a giver than to praise them for helping or giving. Hmm. And I've started to wonder if there's something about character that's different from achievement, where when you say, hey, you know what? You are, you are a kind person. It actually starts to internalize it as part of their identity. And then the next time they have a chance to do something that shows compassion for someone else, they think, well, that's who I am. And so <laughs> my wife, Allison, rolls her eyes at me every once in a while when she catches me saying, you're a giver, which just <laughs> sounds really cheesy. But <laughs> I, I think the data are really interesting. Even as young as three, if you invite kids to be helpers instead of just to help, they're about 25 to 30% more likely to, to show up and help. So even that young, they want to earn the identity. Huh. And that's something I've, I've started to think differently about. What do you make of that? I love that. And I think I'm going to use that to coerce them to do more chores <laughs> by saying like, you know, you are the dishes helper tonight versus 
do the dishes. (laughs) I think there's potential there. Yeah, I think there's a lot of room for growth. (laughs) I should say a caveat. Carol has some work showing that you still have to express disappointment when they don't earn that identity, though. And that when parents show disappointment and say, hey, you know what? I know you're a helper, but you weren't helpful today. That cultivates guilt. And as Irma Bombeck, I think, put it best, guilt is the gift that keeps on giving. I love Irma Bombeck. I'm so glad. I wish I could interview her. I should actually, if anyone ever asked me that question, which no one has, but for the fictitious interviewer who wants to know who I would like to have dinner with, who's not alive anymore, I would pick her. That is such a great answer. Yes, to a non-existent question. Thank you. I'm glad I, I'm glad I lined that <laughs> no, one up. No, but people ask it all the time, right? So in theory, you should always have an answer to it. Right, it's at the ready. Tell me a little bit about the power of listening because you write a lot about that in the book. And I particularly love this little illustration you have where it says, let me interrupt your expertise with my confidence, which is not only about listening, but also about the unbridled confidence. I'm sorry, what were you saying? <laughs> I couldn't resist. I almost missed <laughs> <laughs> Close call. Glad I had coffee. I'm I'm uh, with it. I got it. Okay. Yes. <laughs> listening. Yeah. Power of listening. The power of listening. I I was really profoundly affected by this work in counseling psychology on what's called motivational interviewing, and it it grew out of counselors who were doing work with people who were trying to overcome addictions, and they found that that preaching at people and prosecuting them for doing the wrong thing just didn't tend to work. It made people defensive, and suddenly they realized, you know you often are in a position where you can't motivate someone else to change. What you could do, though, is help them find their own motivation to change. And one of the best ways to do that is to do what we're doing right now, which is actually to interview them, right? To ask them questions about what changes they've considered and how they went so far, and then reflect back to them, hold up a mirror and help them see, you know what? I have some reasons to stay the course, but I also have some reasons to consider changing my beliefs or my behaviors. And then if they express an interest in changing, you help them think through what their plan might be. And this has really changed the way I have conversations with a lot of people, whether it's friends who are are concerned about vaccines or it's students that I give advice to in office hours. I, For so much of my life, I've felt like my job is to try to help people get closer to the truth. And when I think I've already found the truth, okay, I need to enlighten you. And it does such a disservice to their own freedom of choice and also their own expertise and experience. And so what I've tried to do now, when a student comes into office hours, for example, and they ask me for advice on a tough career decision, I'll start by saying, well, tell me why you're here. Are you here because you just want validation for a decision that you've already made? Or are you looking for someone to help you think through what the the thought process should be? Or do you want me to to challenge some of your assumptions and help you rethink what might be a premature conviction? And once I understand that, I can just ask them a bunch of questions to say, okay, what are your values? What are you trying to achieve in this career decision? And then once I understand that, look, it's your choice, but here's how I might think through the decision if I were you. And based on what I've heard, here are the criteria that seem to matter to you. And I end up being much more helpful in those situations. I also learn a lot more because I find out that the reasons I had for preferring a different path are not necessarily their reasons. So interesting. I feel like you can apply that to couples counseling and other areas of times when people end up not listening to each other, especially perhaps if everybody's been home for almost a year because of a 
worldwide pandemic and are having trouble getting along with the people they live with. <laughs> Not that this is happening to me, but I'm just saying. Hypothetically. You know, it, it is interesting. Motivational interviewing has been applied in some of those areas. There's work on divorcing parents, for example, trying to reach a settlement about, about who takes the kids and what the, the schedule looks like. And when the mediator uses this approach and says, you know what, I want to interview each of you about what your goals and your values and your intentions are, they're significantly more likely to actually reach an agreement. Hmm. And I wonder, I mean, this is, the work on listening to me is, is so interesting that just sitting down with someone that you sometimes don't get along with and saying, hey, you know what, I realize I haven't always done a good job hearing you. And I'd love to ask you some questions to better understand your viewpoint. And I'm just going to listen for three, four, maybe five minutes. That is enough to create significant understanding between both people. So interesting. I've thought a lot about listening because I do this all day. I mean, I know I talk a lot too, but I, <laughs> I, I really am listening. I listen to people. I hear them. I think about it all the time. And what it does just to have someone know that someone's listening like that alone, no matter what you say after, like, wow, somebody cares about what I have to say for half an hour. And I really do care. So it's like, I feel like it makes people so grateful. You're, for that simple act of just not being distracted and listening. It's such a rare commodity, isn't it? And I know. And it's so simple. It is. I mean, it's the, the most basic skill that we're supposed to have. And yeah, you're a professional listener. And it's surprising how rare it is for us to sit down with someone else and have a conversation where they're not just waiting for their turn to talk, but they're genuinely curious about who we are and how we got there. I'm reminded of, of some work I did studying astronauts. And their big challenge was to build trust, especially, this is going to sound like a bad joke. It's not. <laughs> there was an American, an Italian, and a Russian that were supposed to go to the International Space Station together. And they didn't see eye to eye on a lot of things. And there were some gender biases and some culture clashes. And one of the things they did around a campfire one night during their training was they told their origin stories. And they listened to each other talk about the defining moment when they realized that they wanted to go to outer space. And all of a sudden they realized, you know what, we have all these differences, but we also share a really uncommon commonality. It was something that only hundreds of people in human history can relate to. And it was sort of a turning point for me because I realized everyone has an origin story, right? We've all had those defining moments that have shifted our ideas of who we want to be or how we want to lead our lives. And how often have we actually shared those moments with the people that we interact with every day? I would say probably not often enough. Totally. Also, I find if you ask people even something simple about themselves when they're not expecting it, like how you met your spouse, because I'm always like totally curious about those like relationship origin stories, you end up learning so much about the person in another context too. People just want to tell you. And I really want to hear. That works out perfectly. <laughs> and speaking of wanting to hear, tell me a little more about how you got to where you are and how also your professional diving experience somehow made its way into your story. <laughs> yeah, I guess I'll start with diving. So I, I fell in love with diving right before I started high school. And it was probably a bad idea because I was afraid of heights and I was completely inflexible and I walked like Frankenstein. But I had an incredible coach, Eric Best, who said, I will never cut an athlete who wants to be here. And he said, I will invest as much time in coaching you as you put into the sport. And he saw more potential in me than I saw in myself. And my biggest, my biggest hurdle in diving, aside from all the physical limitations, was I was just terrified of trying new dives. And I would sit at the end of the board shaking, 
waiting to, to, I was supposed to, I look back now and think, what was I doing? Why? But I, I remember one practice in particular where I was supposed to learn, a, I was supposed to do two and a half somersaults and a twist and dive in headfirst without getting lost. And I, I just stood there shaking, frozen for 20, 25 minutes. And finally, Eric said, Adam, are you going to do this dive? One day, are you ever going to do this dive? And I said, of course. I, I know this is a major goal of mine and it will help me reach some of the, <laughs> some of the heights that I've, I've really dreamed of for the last few years. And he said, well, then what are you waiting for? And there were so many moments like that in my diving career that really helped me appreciate the importance of psychology. And as I started coaching, and especially after I retired from diving, I found myself applying a lot of what I'd learned from Eric with other divers and wanting to pay that forward. And at some point it clicked that if I became a psychologist, there was so much knowledge collecting dust in a bunch of boring academic journal articles that could actually help people live more meaningful lives and maybe have fewer regrets too. And so I think diving probably planted a lot of those early seeds. Wow. So you did all the diving, you started coaching, you stumbled on psychology, you decided that was for you. And then what happened? Then I was lucky to have a few professors who just transformed the way I saw the world. I took a social psychology class with Ellen Langer, where every day I would come into class and I'd have an assumption shattered. Then I took an organizational psychology class with Richard Hackman, who really turned upside down my view of what it meant to have a motivating job. And he also just he got me to rethink what my career path might be because one of the things I hated most about the what do you want to be when you grow up question was there were a lot of different things I wanted to do and I didn't see how they could fit into one career. And as I listened to Richard talking about how he didn't know what he wanted to do, so he just got a job where he got to study all the jobs he found interesting. You know, he studied orchestra conductors when he wanted to be a musician. He studied airline cockpit crews when he wanted to be a pilot. He studied intelligence agencies and how to make their teams great when he wanted to be a, a spy. And I thought, well, this is, this is the perfect job. I'm going to try to study and improve other people's jobs. And it, it really crystallized then. Wow. And when did writing make its way into your life? I've always loved writing. I think the first time I thought seriously about being a writer was the summer after freshman year of college when I started writing a novel. I was reading a lot of thrillers and mysteries and sci-fi books, and I thought it would be fun to try to write one. And then I got busy and forgot about it. And then the next year, I read a bunch of books that really took psychology and, and made it mainstream. I started reading Malcolm Gladwell. I read Csikszentmihalyi on flow. I read Cialdini on influence. And I was mesmerized by the way that psychology came to life. And I thought at some point in my career, maybe I want to do that. And then I forgot about it again and got very focused on, you know, on doing research and teaching my classes. And then after I got tenure, I, I felt like I no longer had an excuse to only communicate to other professors and decided it was time to try reaching a broader audience. And then what was it like when Originals became such a hit? It was sort of a shock. You know, I'd really taken the experience a little bit for granted because I guess the short version of the story is... So my, my first book, Give and Take, came out in 2013. And I didn't expect anyone to read it. I just, I promised my students that I was going to try to build a bridge from the ivory tower to Main Street. And it got a lot more interest and attention than I expected. And at some point during that process, I just started to take for granted that, that I was an author. So Originals comes out and a friend calls me and says, what are you doing to celebrate and mark the moment? And I said, nothing. I'm a writer. That's what we do. We write. <laughs> I write books. This isn't a milestone. And she said, really? 
really? Seriously? You spent, you poured more than a year of your life into this project. Shouldn't you do something to appreciate it? And after thinking about it for a little while, I realized I need to get better at getting in touch with my past self. And so what I ended up doing is thinking about, okay, how excited would the me of five years ago have been if I had not only published a second book, but people actually read it? I would have been ecstatic. And I've tried to keep that in mind every time I accomplish something that, that seems worthwhile or, or took a lot of effort is to say, okay, I might not appreciate this now, but there's an old version of me that would have been overjoyed and I need to keep that in mind. The old version who was playing Nintendo so much that you got written up in a local paper. That version, <laughs> that version perhaps. Yes. Yes. The the dark side of Nintendo kid. Yeah. Who amazing. who would have thought, okay, I guess I'm probably gonna be a professional video gamer. <laughs> so do you have any advice to aspiring authors? Advice to aspiring authors. I think it's dangerous to take advice from people who don't know you at all. But I would say that the advice you give to other people is often the advice you need to take for yourself. And so I would pay attention. You, If you're an aspiring writer, you probably know some other people who like to write, maybe even some people who write for a living. And I'm sure they've come to you at some point asking for advice on what to write or how to overcome procrastination or how to improve their work. And I would just say, pay attention to the guidance that you give them and then apply it to your own writing. Okay, love it. Well, Adam, thank you. This was so much fun. Thank you for not making me rethink my decision to have you on my show and for spending <laughs> the time with me today. Oh, it was such a treat to be here, Zibby. Thank you for having me. And I have to ask you, is there something you think I should rethink? Um, maybe how often you post about amazing podcasters and maybe you should do that more often. Oh, I like it. <laughs> I have not done that enough. That's a very good point. There you go. I'm thinking, I'm actually thinking I might do, I've, I've been doing a whole bunch of fascinating interviews, obviously, over the past week or two, getting ready for book launch. And I'm thinking about maybe doing a roundup post so that they're all in one place, as opposed to saying, all right, I'm going to do a one-off share of each episode, and then it's only going to reach you know, a subset of an audience. Maybe I can amplify it by putting them all together. What do you think? I like that. I think that's great. All right. I'll run the experiment. We'll see how it goes. Okay. I'll be watching. <laughs> I, right. I really appreciate you having me. And thank you for, for also just doing so much homework. I can't believe you read the book and also watched the TED Talk. I hope it didn't ruin your day. It didn't at all. I found all of it super fascinating, truly. Well, thank you. This was okay. a pleasure. Okay. Take care. Bye. You too. Bye-bye. Today's episode has been sponsored by This Is Everything, the podcast by Ali Levine. And just a reminder again, please pre-order a copy of my book, Moms Don't Have Time To, a quarantine anthology, and go to my website under the anthology tab for the fundraiser, and I hope you'll buy a ticket and join me for, and I should have mentioned um, all proceeds go to COVID-19 research. So please join me for the fundraiser. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time To Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 